Welcome to the Sunbury Press Book Show on the BookSpeak Network. Sunbury Press publishes print, electronic, and audiobooks under a variety of imprints and categories available worldwide wherever books are sold. And now your host, the founder and CEO of Sunbury Press, Lawrence Knorr. I'm at the Sunbury Press studio at the historic Christian Baker Farm near Boiling Springs, Pennsylvania. My guest today is Wiley McClellan, coming to us from Vancouver, British Columbia. Wiley, welcome. Welcome. Thank you. Glad to be here. Now, we're going to start off today talking about your two-book set, the Heming- Hemingway and the Rise of Modern Literature, book one, Unbridled Dreamer, book two, A Man of Modern Letters. Wiley, that's a lot about Hemingway. Why, uh, why would you write about Hemingway? Do you have a connection or something? Well, uh, I love his, his work, and uh, the time he spent in, in Paris is so fascinating. All the great artists that were there, Picasso, James Joyce, Gertrude Stein, and he was right at the heart of that. And I had a, an old friend in Memphis, you may, may well have heard of, Shelby Foote. He wrote a narrative of the Civil War. Oh, yeah. Loved it. And I was at, one time I was at his house. I didn't go to his house very much, but I was over there. And he told me that the two greatest influences on English prose was Shakespeare and Ernest Hemingway. And that's everything. That's like promotion brochures, newspaper articles, magazines, everything. And I, I could see his point. And Hemingway, when he, when his story, first great stories were published in our time and the novel, The Sun Also Rises, it changed everything. And the impact is still felt today. And I just wanted to tell that story. I wanted to get to the heart of it. I did, you know, I, I did a lot of research. It's, uh, I've been fascinated by Hemingway in Paris all my life. And I wanted to get that story. I wanted to get to the heart of that story and, and bring it out for anyone who wants to learn about it, as many people do. So um, the time period for the two books, what would you say the the years are that are in scope here? Well, it, it's his life up until just after the publication of The Sun Also Rises. Ernest Hemingway was born in 1899 in the town of Oak Park, Illinois. And so it, the first book, Unbridled Dreamer, goes through his childhood up until he goes to Paris, he gets married and goes to Paris, and has sort, sort, serves a sort of apprenticeship under Gertrude Stein and Ezra Pound. And he gets a few things published by small presses. And then the second volume, A Man of Modern Letters, takes him from the time he returns to Paris after a few months in Toronto working for the Toronto Star, when he starts writing these great stories, which impacted the world, and up through the publication of The Sun Also Rises. So The Sun Also Rises, this was in the 1920s? It was published in 1926. 1926, okay. So this is before all his World War II, later life, uh, 
experiences. All yeah. The things you wrote. I didn't, I wanted to show, you know, how he brought the modern movement into the cultural mainstream. The modern movement was, had been there in, you know, for years. Really, it started with Gertrude Stein in the early 20th century. And he was led to, to Paris by a writer named Sherwood Anderson. And in Paris, it changed his, old, his whole attitude toward writing when he met with Ezra Pound and Gertrude Stein. And they really liked this young man. You know, Hemingway was a very charming, handsome man, full of energy. He filled the room up. And they worked on him, and he, and he listened. One of the things about Ernest Hemingway, one of the characteristics of him throughout his life is how well he took instructions. And this was, people were marked on this throughout his life. He was like a sponge. He absorbed things. And he, had to, and he knew what to do with it once it was inside of him. It was hard work. It yeah. took him years to develop that style that he became so famous for, you know, that very direct, simplistic sentence structure. So what else, what else was he writing besides these novels? Well, he really, Hemingway's, Ernest Hemingway's natural media is the short story. But he was able to expand it out into novels. His first work were very short pieces, like paragraphs. And then when he returned and these were published uh, in small presses. And somehow this great critic named Edmund Wilson got hold of a copy of, these, of this very slim book with these short pieces and was, was very much impressed. And um, he began to get, Hemingway began to get notice in some of the newspapers for this slim volume of what were really just sketches because it was new. Most people hadn't, didn't know about the modern movement in literature at that time. And they were impressed by these things. And uh, he was in Toronto, and he, he didn't really make it as a newspaper. He didn't have the temperament for being a newspaper writer, you know, churning out everything every day. So he and his wife, Hadley, they just had a baby. They returned to Paris, and these... These short sketches became short stories. They just kind of exploded in his mind. And uh, they were collected, and they were published by a publisher in New York City called Bonnie and Liverwright. And the critics loved it. When these, when these books came out, they loved it. And one of Hemingway's friends at this time was F. Scott Fitzgerald. He, they met in Paris. And Fitzgerald was a very successful writer. He wasn't really of the modern movement. He was more of a romantic um, person, you know, who on the rise. And he told Hemingway that, you know, short stories are great, but if you really want to make it as a successful writer, a novel, you need to write a novel. And Hemingway did have it in him to write a novel. And in the book, A Man of Modern Letters, I go through the, how he came about doing this. He wrote The Sun Also Rises, which is about the lost generation after World War One, searching for themselves. So, what would you say are the key elements of this modern movement? 
What differentiates it, say, from the romance? is reality. Yeah. You know, like, there was great writing before the moderns came along. You know, Shakespeare, uh, of course, and Henry James and Charles Dickens, many great writers, and there were great American writers, Hawthorne. And, but, you know, like, the, the modern movement wanted to deal explicitly with the world around them. They wanted to tell the whole story. They didn't want to cover up anything. Hemingway's first published short story was called Indian Camp. And it's about a young boy accompanying his father, who's a doctor, to an Indian camp on a lake. And it's a very rough berth. And unbeknown to the young boy, the husband is in the upper bunk. And during this berth, the husband slits his throat and bleeds to death. And uh, the doctor, the father, says to his son, I'm sorry that I brought you along. And this was a new kind of story written in a new kind of style. Mm-hmm. You know, and it, it changed everything. All of a sudden, you could write about anything. Very interesting. It, I mean, it even affected uh, film. You know, the films that were made in the 1920s and, and 30s were very much constricted by uh, censorship. As time went on and the modern movement took effect, it even moved over into film to where you had people like Brando and, you know, saying cuss words on the screen and everything like that. All right. Well, we're going to need to take a break. We're talking to Wiley McClellan, the author of Hemingway and the Rise of Modern Literature. We'll be right back. The BookSpeak Network brings you history through biography. Sunbury Press Books founder and publisher Lawrence Knorr hosts this program that takes a look at pivotal figures in American history, including the famous, the infamous, and the not-so-well-known. Lawrence is joined by Joe Farrell and Joe Farley, authors of the Keystone Tombstone series of books, available at sunburypress.com. History through biography, here on the BookSpeak Network. I'm talking to Wiley McClellan the author of Hemingway and the Rise of Modern Literature. Wiley, uh, tell me a little bit about the family connection you have with Hemingway. My great-great-grandparents, Addison and Orpha Nicky, had a cabin on Walloon Lake, very near where the Hemingways had their cabin. And over the summers, they became very good friends. There's pictures of the families together. Um... And like they called, like my grandfather and his siblings called Dr. and Mrs. Hemingway and uncle. And Hemingway and his sisters and brothers called my great-great-grandparents Uncle Addison and Aunt Orpha. And they were very close during these summers. My aunt remembers uh, Ernest Hemingway very well back then as a boy. He was uh, full of energy, like he used to dunk her in the lake and... uh and he was a show-off, she remembers. She, he would line up his peas on his, on his knife and tilt them into his mouth. And Grandpa, my grandfather, knew him very well. In fact, he, uh, in the 50s, he called him up when he was in Cuba. And I don't know, you know, how long the conversation was, because I wasn't there. My father told me about it. But they talked a bit about those summers back in Walloon Lake. And uh, the person whom they remembered the most was Ernest's mother, Grace Hemingway. 
Hemingway was very much like his mother. They had these very expansive personalities, and they would fill a room, and they, they attracted everyone. And Mrs. Hemingway, who had been a very beautiful woman when she was younger, she over the years, she'd put on a lot of weight. And when she laughed, she had this great laughter, and her whole body would shake. And they all remembered that. You know, they called her Aunt Grace. And uh, the cabin that my grandparents, my great-great-grandparents had went to other members of the family. And uh, the last person who had that cabin was my aunt. And uh, I remember she was much older than me. She was like uh, a little bit younger than my grandparents. She had picked me up there, but but she knew the Hemingways well. And uh, some of the Hemingways still have that cabin also on Walloon Lake. Wow. Now, did Hemingway ever write about Walloon Lake or even indirectly mention any oh, of these yes, people? Oh, yes, he did, yeah. extensively. Extensively. His first short stories were about Walloon Lake. Okay. It wasn't called Walloon Lake in the stories, but that's what it was. Right, right, right. Like those stories in, of In Our Time were basically set in Walloon Lake. Boy, I feel ignorant. And, I, uh, I have uh, some Hemingway on my shelves and a book of short stories and... I should probably pull that out and realize that that might be some of his earliest work. Yes, it was. Okay. His first short story, Indian Camp on the Lake, where they went to take care of a a birth, that was Walloon Lake. Okay. It's not named so in the lake, you know, in the story, but it could only be Walloon Lake. Yeah. Hemingway, um, he spent every summer of his life there growing up until he was about 21. And his mother knew that he loved that place and gave him the cabin, but he didn't want it, and uh, he let one of his sisters have it. She asked him, why don't you want that cabin, Ernest, you know, because you, you love that lake so much. This was years later, like even after the Paris years. And he wrote back to her saying, Walloon Lake was the only perfect time in my life, mm. and I don't want to ruin it by going back there. Wow. But it helped him, you know, like, he went off to war in 1918. He got almost got killed on the front lines of Italy. And when he came back to Oak Park, Illinois, he returned to Walloon Lake in the summers, and it helped him heal, being up there fishing and being around the old crowd, the old gang. It's very interesting, very interesting. Now, I'll pivot to Shelby Foote. You had mentioned... Um, when we were talking before coming on about Shelby Foote, um, what was the connection with you and Shelby and Shelby's interest in uh, Hemingway? Shelby Foote loved Ernest Hemingway. Shelby Foote's first wife was my father's, one of his first real loves. In fact, my father wanted to marry her. Her name was Peggy Desam. And she dropped him to marry Shelby Foote. Daddy understood it. You know, he didn't bear any grudge or anything like that. And uh, in fact, he said it was probably the best thing that ever happened to him. <laughs> if he married her, he, could, he wouldn't have met my mother. But she was a close friend of ours. You know, they remained friends. And... Uh, she was a lovely person, you know, beautiful woman. 
Shelby Foote. And um, I wanted to, him to autograph his books. So I went over there. He said, yeah, come on over. So I went over there, and he autographed the books. We had a nice long talk. You know, we talked about the Civil War and writing. Remember, he said to me, there's always something to write. Mm -hmm. And uh, he really liked Ernest Hemingway. And uh, as I said, he told me that uh, that Shakespeare and Ernest Hemingway were the two greatest influence on uh, written English language. Uh, Shelby was certainly uh, a great writer himself. And I don't think yeah. he was a formally trained historian, but a great writer of historic narrative. Well, he he had this fat. You know, he was one of William Faulkner's good friends, mm. and he had, and he uh, the Civil War fascinated Shelby Foote. And he and Faulkner went to Shiloh one time, and they they toured the battlefield together. And the first book he wrote uh, was a short book about Shiloh. And Bennett Cerf, the great publisher read that and published it and said you know you need to write more about the civil war and uh i guess he obtained some kind of a grant and he spent 20 years writing a narrative of the civil war yeah and he did it in these uh in these kind of rundown places too interesting like he, there's this neighborhood in memphis right, right by the river it wasn't a particularly good neighborhood but he just wanted to be kind of isolate himself to concentrate on this of course Shel that's probably what took it I was going to say, he, you know, at least for me, he comes onto the radar because of the Ken Burns Civil War documentary. But his yeah. books had been out for quite a while. I guess they were bestsellers. Although they, they're, oh, yeah. they are critiqued when these I, days. When I went over to his house, it was in the 70s. Yeah. It was long before Ken Burns. Yeah. He, he was a nice man. Shelby Foote was a very nice man. So, uh, working on my PhD in history, and I can tell you the uh, the current discussions about the Civil War. Shelby is seen as more of a proponent of the lost cause, or at least romanticizing the Southern cause a little little bit. And uh, I don't know. I, I really enjoyed t listening to Shelby Foote, and I, I think he just well, had know, a way of talking about the war from a person, you know, like from the perspective of the people involved. Everything changes. Like I remember, you know, James Dickey, the great poet. Mm -hmm. I remember I went to a uh, to see him speak at uh, in Oxford, Mississippi, at the University of Mississippi, and he was talking about how everything, like Shakespeare, for example, he had been up and down throughout all the years. Like he was, what almost uh, almost five hundred, four hundred years ago, longer really. No, four hundred years ago, and uh, his reputation has has been up and down throughout those 400 years. I mean, in fact, there's people who say he didn't even write those plays, mm. which I don't believe at all. I, but everything, opinions change all the time. And, you know, right now, uh, for example, Robert E. Lee is being vilified, maybe for good reason, you know. But what, however you look at Robert E. Lee, the man was an incredible soldier. Mm-hmm. And uh, I like reading Shelby Foote, period. I mean, I can pick up one of his books and just start reading anywhere in there. And it's, yeah. it's such beautiful writing. And it's true, too. I mean, that, you know, that, that was, they fought that war over slavery. Sla slavery never set well in the United States. No. 
we're, we're always uncomfortable with slavery here. Well, we need to take another break, Wiley. So we're talking to Wiley McClellan, the author of Hemingway and the Rise of Modern Literature. We'll be right back. Listen for the Brown Posey Press podcast, available here on the BookSpeak Network. I'm Tori Gates, and my guests include fellow authors on our fiction imprint, but also other independent and self-published writers, poets, movers, and shakers in the literary world. Listen for current and previous shows here. The BookSpeak Network brings the story behind the stories and their creators here. I'm talking to Wiley McClellan, the author of Hemingway and the Rise of Modern Literature. Wiley, in the intro to the first book, you, you compare Hemingway to Elvis. Maybe you could expand on that a little bit. It sounds very interesting. Well, it's it, what they did in their various arts was very similar. Um, when Hemingway arrived in Paris in 1921, he didn't know that he was going to become the the man who would move modern literature into the cultural mainstream. Just like when Elvis Presley began recording at the Sun Studios, he didn't know that he was going to be the person to bring rock and roll into the modern mainstream. And in both cases, these arts had been around for a while. Rock and roll, you know, they trace it back to Robert Johnson on the crossroads in Mississippi. Cream put out that great song, Crossroads, where this fellow came up with these different notes for a guitar. And from there, everything, you know, rock and roll grew out of that. And modern literature, they trace it to Gertrude Stein uh, about 1904, when she wrote Three Lives. So when Hemingway arrived in Paris, modern literature was already there. It was in place. He didn't change the precepts of it. Just like Elvis Presley, when he started recording in Memphis, rock and roll was already there. Right. You know, he didn't really change any of that. He, but both men took the beats and the rhythms of this new kind of art and, and reinterpreted it within themselves and put out these, these works that the world loved. You know, when Elvis Presley recorded Hound Dog and Don't Be Cruel, the world loved these records. You know, I mean, they didn't know about the people before him very much. You know, they were, they were obscure musicians from these small towns in Mississippi. But when Elvis Presley came on and started with, with his great tunes, the world turned on. And all of a sudden, rock had arrived. Same thing with Ernest Hemingway, yeah. with modern literature. So what point do you think Hemingway... What point do you think Hemingway really becomes an international figure? Uh, Hemingway became, after the publication of The Sun Also Rises, Hemingway became a very famous young man. Dorothy Parker said that for a long while you can go anywhere without hearing about The Sun Also Rises. And it was a huge hit, too. I mean, uh, you know, it went through, it, it would go through printings, Every three or four months, they would have to issue a new printing. And all these young college people bought it. Some of them were actually getting on steamers and crossing the Atlantic to go to Paris and live the bohemian life in, mm-hmm. on the West Bank, you know. And uh, also, it's been said that for a long time, everyone wrote like Ernest Hemingway. And everyone became, and they wrote explicitly about disease and, and war and all these other things. 
just like for a long time after Elvis Presley um, came, a lot of people sounded like Elvis Presley. Yeah. Conway Twitty's first recordings, everyone thought it was Elvis Presley singing. You know? Very interesting. Yeah, so I guess I would summarize, you know, the, the title, The Rise of Modern Literature. It's also the formative years of Ernest Hemingway and a very interesting duo of books. We're, we're very pleased to have them at Sunbury Press uh, through, our, well, thank you very much. through our Oxford Southern imprint. So, Wiley, what else, you're, love, work, what else you're working on? Well, the first book that I had published by Sunbury Press uh, was called Tigers by the River, and it was about the early years of professional football. There was this great professional team that was uh, owned by a very wealthy man in Memphis named Clarence Saunders. He was the one who founded the uh, first successful self-service grocery store. And he put together this marvelous, this was in 1929, this marvelous professional football team, which up to that time was the best that I think had ever been assembled. And they beat everybody. They beat the Chicago Bears. They beat the Green Bay Packers. And the Green Bay Packers and the Bears were the were great professional football teams at that time. And it was uh, a largely forgotten story. And Clarence Saunders, he was another one of these great innovators who changed the world. Like he, uh, he put together the first successful self-service grocery store. And that changed the whole retail business too. I mean, every, you know, like department stores basically founded on his concept. You're talking about Piggly Wiggly, right? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Piggly Wiggly came out in about 1915 around in there and it was a huge hit. It was, you know, people lined up outside of it. And within a few years, there were thousands of them across the United States. Still and, in existence uh, today. Everything I changed. Yeah. Yeah. Clothing stores became, when the, everything went that way. Retail went that way. So that book but is I'm also, uh, Tigers by the ahead, River, sir. right? Is the football book. And yes, it is. And I, 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 in order to make sense out of that, I had to really go back to the beginnings of professional football mm-hmm. and how the NFL arose. At the time in 1929, the NFL, the National Football League, was there. But it's not like what it is now. Right. It was a struggling league. George Hallis held it together. And, you know, a lot of teams went broke. Right. And some of the great teams now, like the Detroit Lions and the, uh, the pro, pro team in Washington, they were there then, but they weren't called, but they were in different cities. They were in smaller towns, and they had different names. And, uh, like, the Detroit Lions, were, I think, were the province. They were, the, they were from some small town in southern Ohio. And they were a good team. They were a good pro team, but they couldn't make it in that small town, so the, they moved up to Detroit and became the Lions. Hmm. And I find that all those things fascinating, you know, yeah. how the beginnings. Of- yeah, football fans will find the book really fascinating because it's an obscure aspect of NFL history not many people know. Um, but it showed, it, it showed the NFL at, at that time yeah. when it was growing. It was already a very exciting game. Well, we only have about a minute left. So uh, if you could just tease us with a few seconds on the Jimi Hendrix project you're working on in Vancouver. Well, um, Jimi Hendrix was from Seattle and he grew up in grinding poverty. And 
what a lot of people don't know is that uh, his father was from Vancouver, where I live. I live just outside of Vancouver. And they would send him up here to be with his grandmother and his aunt. And he spent a lot of time up here. And when he came to Vancouver, it was a different life for him. It was a more stable life. And his grandmother and his aunt provided a stable place for him. And I think that that it gave him a better idea of himself and what he could achieve in life. Because his life in Seattle was was pretty bad. Yeah. You know. His yeah. father had a very terrible time getting a job. And his mother was a alcoholic and was never at home. And uh I'm just really starting the research on this. One of his cousins uh, has become a friend of mine, and uh, we're starting to talk about this. I'm, you know, I've been reading a couple of books about it, and uh, I'm asking Henry questions. And uh, so I, I think I know there's a story there, and I'm just hoping I can bring it out, you know, and, and that we can publish it and give it to the world. Wiley, it's been great talking to you. I'm uh, I'm amazed with your connections from Shelby Foote to Ernest Hemingway to Piggly Wiggly to... <laughs> well, I got a million of them. Yeah. Um, anyway, uh, it's been great talking to you. We'll have you back for the Jimi Hendrix book when it happens. Thank you. All right. Well, it's been great talking to you, too. Good way to spend the Saturday morning. We've been talking to Wiley McClellan, the author of Hemingway and the Rise of Modern Literature. Thank you for listening to the Sunbury Press Book Show on the BookSpeak Network. Check out our website at www.sunburypress.com for our latest releases. Be sure to subscribe to our newsletter to receive special offers and discounts.